Hi, I'm Kosha. And I'm Shaylushi. And we're sisters and the co-hosts of the podcast, I Am Speaking with Shaylushi and Kosha. This podcast focuses on sharing and amplifying the voices of people who have felt othered. We've had the chance to hear so many amazing stories. And during season two, one of our running jokes together was that once VP Kamala Harris heard about this podcast, she was definitely going to call us to be a guest, but that we would have to turn her down because her story didn't fit with our theme for that season. But that joke was really the seed for this series. I am speaking with expert voices, an arm of our original and still ongoing podcast. We're excited to share with you the stories and expertise of people who are at the forefront of their fields. And Madam Vice President, with the launch of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, we are now ready for you to join us at any time. I think that was good, right? Welcome, listeners. Today, we have a good friend of mine, someone I've met uh, since moving to Illinois, um, but also an inspiration to me and I think hopefully to all of you. Today, we are speaking with Sharmali Majwidar, who is the Executive Vice President of Policy and Organizational Impact at Women Employed. And today, we get to hear her talk about gender wage gaps, age wage gaps, you know, all kinds of unconscious bias and discrimination that happens at the workplace, what really sort of inclusive, um, caring, thoughtful workplaces might look like, and the work that they're doing now to help us get there. Yes, but don't worry, it is not all doom and gloom. There is, there's a lot of optimism baked into the episode. And one of the most amazing things, which, you know, the, I don't know if anyone even thinks about this um, because if you work for an employer that offers paid sick leave, you think everyone gets paid sick leave, right? Turns out Illinois does not have a mandatory paid sick leave law on its books. So, you know, people don't have to offer paid sick leave, but certainly over the last two years, we have seen just how important it is for people to stay home when they don't feel well. Absolutely. I think um, I, I was blown away by how articulate and how well-spoken um, Charmelee is in, in explaining some of the problems that we face and how it can lead, you know, we think about wage, the gender wage gap being like, well, it's the 17 cents on a dollar, just, you know, you just pay women more or something, but that there's so many other layers to the issue and how a wage gap can turn into hundreds of thousands of dollars over time and it, it becomes a wealth gap. I hope everyone really loves this episode. It's really, really important. Um, not only because this is a pressing issue, right? But if we're really interested 
and in having the best and brightest people contributing, we have to make sure that everyone is able to, to really bring their full selves to work and take care of themselves and to take care of the people that, you know, they need to care for without being afraid that, you know, that they will suffer in some sort of employment context. I, I, I'm just blown away. I mean, I knew she was amazing and I knew that she was brilliant, but man, I'm blown away. You were proven right. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We are speaking with Sharmali Mujmudar. Please enjoy. Hi, I'm Sharmili Majmadar. My pronouns are she, her, and I am speaking. Hi. Hi, Sharmili. Hello. So glad to have you on our podcast. This is really oh, exciting. Thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. Um, for those of you who are listening today, uh, you may not know Sharmili, but we're going to dig into her work, her background. Um, and because March is Women's History Month, we are featuring Charmily as our, our sort of expert guest on some of the more uh, prevalent and pervasive issues that women face, particularly around work, wages, you know, any, anything sort of in that professional sphere. So let's start with the basic question. T- can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us about your background and how did you come to the work that you're doing now? Sure. So I have been doing work in the gender equity space my entire professional career. Um, But I started probably more diving in to that work in college when I did some volunteer work around sexual violence prevention and uh, went to grad school in Chicago at Loyola, got my MSW, um, continued to do Uh, volunteer work and activism work, particularly in the queer people of color space, Uh, was a founding member of an organization called Kuli Zaban, which no longer exists, but um, was a space for queer women of South and West Asian descent, um, as well as trans and genderqueer folks. And throughout that time, both kind of like from a personal journey but also from that work of doing gender-based violence have always been interested um, in advocating on behalf of the advances that we need as a society in order to become a truly inclusive world in which people can feel like they belong and that they are not artificially restricted by preconceived notions of what uh, gender roles are and how gender roles are applied. So Gender-based violence was actually the space in which I worked for almost 25 years, Uh, was a clinical social worker, worked with very young children and their parents uh, who had experienced a variety of different kinds of trauma, particularly domestic violence, but other types of trauma as well, moved to other organizations that did work in domestic violence. I was the executive director of the only independent rape crisis center in Chicago for almost a decade. And then 
uh, found my way to where I currently work, Women Employed, which is a nonprofit advocacy organization that also advances gender equity, but from an economic justice lens uh, and understands gender equity as an economic justice issue, as a racial justice issue as well. Um, and the leap for me from gender-based violence work to doing work more around gender equity in the economic space was because I saw how much of a difference it made. You know, every, practically every survivor of violence that I ever worked with, whether or not they had access to a decent job with wages with which they could support their families, uh, benefits that allowed them to take sick leave when they needed to, all of those things made a huge difference on their journey to safety and healing. And so moving into doing more economic justice work with uh, the still with a gender equity lens kind of was a natural uh, next step for me. It's interesting. I mean, you and I have talked about this before, that our paths have sort of mirrored each other a little bit, or at least been parallel. Um, you know, I my work has been in gender-based, you know, equity work as well, but more on the reproductive rights side um, and less on the violence side. Although, you know, I did work at a DV shelter when I was in graduate school. And so, um, and, and really, like like you were just saying, how completely tied up all of those things are reproductive you know justice and equity racial equity economic justice and uh violence and and sort of gender-based violence are also they're all so tied up together um and it's really interesting how we think about them as separate so often um so tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing now and then we'll you know we'll ping pong around a little bit so Women Employed has been around since 1973, and we've been focused on removing the barriers to economic equity for women and ensuring that they have access to higher education, post-secondary education, as well as ensuring that the workplaces that we have are fair. And over the years, that's included being part of some of the most major advances that have been made as it relates to fairness in the workplace. We have done work around sexual harassment. We helped to pass paid sick leave here in Chicago. Um, we're currently working on a number of different issues that I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on later. And we've also worked on what it means to be able to have access to the credentials, skills, opportunities to get a better paying job. And one that offers other things too, because we often think about the quality of the job and, and think about the pay and that's a huge piece of it, but it's not the only piece to what makes a job a good job and particularly for women as well. So a lot of the work we're doing right now is very much focused on building women's economic power in order to close the wealth gap at the intersection of race and gender. And we're very intentional about the idea that we need to build power. It's not simply security and stability. Those are, those are important, but those are the baseline. 
And really, in order to move forward, we're going to need to build power. And that intersection of race and gender is incredibly important because while issues like equal pay, for example, are definitely an issue of the gender wage gap, they are only more exacerbated when you layer race in. And if we don't think of race, we leave, be, we leave people behind. Um, so we have to think about that intersection as well. I recently saw something that was like, you know, the average, if you just look at women, it's like 83 cents to the dollar or 87 cents to the dollar. But then when you factor in race, it gets lower and lower and lower to the point where, and I'm, I don't have the exact numbers, but it was in like, it was like 57 cents to the dollar for Latinx women. Yeah. And I think that is such a great example of how it's important to think about race as well, because if we look at what the typical gap is for the, for the typical woman, we come up with that 83 cents on the dollar. So that's uh, women who are working full-time year round uh, against men who are working full-time year round, right? So the idea is that women have to work that much more to just make the same dollar. If we only look at the typical, which is that 83 cents, then if we closed that gap, the typical gap, we still wouldn't be reaching parity because of exactly what you said, Kosha, that when you start factoring race in, it gets worse and worse. And actually, if you start disaggregating, even within large racial groups, you get even a broader spectrum. So what I mean by that is that when we're talking about Asian Pacific Islander women, for example, there's actually a spectrum within that where, you know, South Asian, East Asian women tend to make more than um, Pacific Islander women or Southeast Asian women. And it also matters how, re more, how recently, if this is an immigrant um, woman that we're talking about, how recently that, that immigration happened. The same is true for Latinx women as well. So when you start digging in, you find that we don't have a universal standard or metric for what that gap really is that would include everyone. And in fact, if we were really interested in closing the gender wage gap, we have to focus on what that larger gap is, what the largest gap is of, of Latinx women, not on what the average gap is. And that's a bigger gap for us to address. Yeah, that's, I mean, that average is, it's like going into buy, you know, clothes on some level, which is like the size blah, blah is, is made for the average person, but nobody actually fits really that average because nobody is like the average in the way that, you know, this kind of stuff is calculated. And so I think it's so fascinating to hear, like there's even breakdowns within, you know, the bigger categories of, you know, people um, that, that, you know, to focus not, not just on raising the gap or filling the gap, but like really being very intentional about who and how much. 
and understanding that the drivers of that gap do vary a little bit, right? So, uh, so sexism, gender discrimination still continues to be a huge part of the puzzle, um, but there are multiple factors that are at play. So where, for example, are uh, low-paid Latinx women more overrepresented, right? It can be in sectors that don't offer benefits or don't offer um, opportunities for family-sustaining wages, those kinds of things. And I think we often talk about the gender wage gap in terms of percentages or more often in terms of cents on the dollar. And what sometimes gets lost in that is that when you think about what those cents on the dollar mean over a typical 40 year working career, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? We're talking about well over $400,000 up to over a million dollars. And so when we're thinking about the gender wage gap, we're also talking about a wealth gap, right? That money is the difference between being able to go to college, being able to send your kid to college, being able to buy a home, being able to buy a car, um, you know, being able to afford choices. And those choices also include retirement savings. When you're facing a gender wage gap, it means your social security and retirement income are lower as well, uh, and your earnings are lower for, for those things. And so that hits you later. And the other thing we don't always think about or talk about with the gender wage gap is that it starts immediately when, uh, when women start working and it only increases over age. So there's an ageist aspect to the gender wage gap as well. So you add all of this together and then you start getting into what are the generational impacts of the wage gap. It's not about the individual woman and her earnings, right? It's about what is she able to do for herself? What is her family able to afford? What are they able to pass on to the next generation? So it's a, the gender wage gap is a, is a critical, critical issue. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's, again, like you just layer I'm thinking so much, thinking back to a statistic about um, abortion and women who are seeking abortion and if they get it or not, and if they are not able to have the abortion when they seek it, they're like four to five times more likely to live in poverty than women who do. And so, you know, what, one other really interesting thing about the gender wage gap, cause I didn't know it was ageist as well, right? So then you've got that whole thing to figure out um, or that whole thing to contend with as well, um, but that women face the unique situation of generally having to be the caregivers for their children. Almost all, you know, single mother, single parents are moms. Not all, but almost all. And in custody situations, they tend to have primary custody. Um, and even in a you know two-parent households or both parents are engaged in, you know, the, the work of the household, right? The work of taking care of kids and earning money. Women end up having to do the, the caring duty much more, either for themselves, I mean, for their families, for their children, and for, you know, adults in their lives, the generation up. How does that play in to the wage gap and women's ability to, you know, make a solid economic future for themselves? 
Well, it's a huge pay equity issue, right? Um, because A, we as a country do not offer things like universal paid sick leave or universal paid fam family leave, um, family medical leave. We don't have a robust and strong universal childcare system. So, uh, you know, there are, we are, we are one of very, very few countries that have the same kind of level of wealth um, that we do that don't offer those things. And what it means is that we're leaving money on the table, right? If we actually made investments in those types of safety nets and infrastructure, we could, we could have a trillion more dollars over the next 10 years in the GDP in the United States. There is money that we are leaving on the table as a country, let alone kind of what it means for individual, um, individual families, individual caregivers. But yes, absolutely. I mean, how, how else can you really analyze what's happened for the pandemic, right? Yeah, at this absolutely. point, at this point where we're two years out from, uh, from the onset of the pandemic, um, men have recouped all of their job losses. Women have not. And women have not recouped their job losses because we still do not have a workplace, generally speaking, that centers the needs of caregivers, um, or frankly, centers the needs of the, the modern American worker, right? So our workplaces, generally speaking, are still designed for white men who are the primary caregivers, or excuse me, the primary breadwinners for their families who, um, do not have caregiving responsibilities themselves, right? That is not the American worker. And until we have a workplace that's actually designed to be as inclusive as it would need to be in order to really account for the vast diversity of needs and experiences of American workers, we're gonna continue to have lower labor force participation by women and by women of color than there could be. Right. And you're going to have these ongoing pay equity issues um, as well. And the pay equity issues are so uh, they're so insidious and complex. We often think about it as equal pay for equal work. Right. That's the slogan. That's how we often think about it. But there is so much more to it. Right. So, for example, if you think about a tech company that looks and analyzes its administrative assistance and looks like, are we paying them well? Are we paying them market competitive rates? You know, are women being paid them as much as men? They could end up looking really good. You know, they could have a decent salary for their admin assistant. Um, they could have decent pay equity at that level. But that is a level in that company that is likely to be dominated by women. And it is likely to be dominated proportionally by women of color. And so then you start looking higher in that company, right? You start looking at managers, you start looking at directors and VPs. And when we're talking about pay equity, we're not just talking about look at your one layer and make sure that everyone's being paid um, in, in a way that is uh, fair. You're also looking at what is the representation at every level of that company? What opportunities exist 
for people to be promoted, for them to get stretch projects, for them to be able to advance to another level within the company, right? That is a big piece of it. What happens if someone takes paid leave? How are they treated? If, if you know, you're fortunate enough to have a, a workplace that offers it, are you punished? Are there ways in which you're left out? Does your career advancement stall? There was a recent study that was done um, by Indeed that was actually really uh, uh, a little alarming because it found that for um, people who got caregiving accommodations at work, um, that 60 plus percent of those accommodations were actually not honored by their managers. And that huge percentages um, of those folks found themselves left out of strategy meetings. They were left out of decision-making around hiring in areas that would affect them. Um, and they said that their managers were, were not supportive uh, and women of color were overrepresented in the groups that, in, the, in that group that said that their managers not reported. And I think part of the reason is because when we think about accommodations for caregivers, and having like a hybrid workplace, for example, or, or work from home situation. We sometimes only think of that as though we're changing the location someone's working and you're not, you're changing, you need to change the culture of the workplace and the ways in which people are included, the ways in which they receive opportunity, the ways in which they are compensated needs to be incredibly intentional. You have to think about all the biases that exist Proximity bias is a big one. You know, we talk about racial and gender bias, but there are other kinds of biases too. Proximity bias is basically saying that, you know, you have a bias towards the people that you can see, that you're near, that you can physically pop into to what they're doing and see that they're doing it. There's, a, there's sometimes a lack of trust for the folks that you're not seeing. You know, having said all of this, I'm probably talking a little bit with these things like hybrid, remote, all of those things. Uh, those are things that affect more higher income earners, right? So when we talk about frontline work, when we talk about uh, lower paid sectors, like hybrid and working remotely was, is not an option, right? So what we found during the pandemic is a lot of those folks, again, overwhelmingly women of color and specifically black and, black and Latinx women, as well as immigrant women, we found either they were losing their jobs, um, they were losing hours, or they were put in these positions of making really, really uh, impossible choices. How do you choose between putting food on the table and protecting your family from getting a communicable disease, right? There are many issues that exist at those frontline levels with low paid industries that are really set up to prevent people from being able to get ahead, or at least that is the effect that, that happens for them. And none of this, like we haven't even touched yet the issues of childcare and the childcare industry, where you had one third of the childcare workforce over across the pandemic were gone, and only two thirds of that workforce has returned. It's a workforce that's 95% women, majority women of color, it is low paid work, and yet it is absolutely critical for caregivers, primarily women, to be able to work, right? It's the work that makes work possible. And 
our childcare industry has not been invested in as a country. And we've seen some like relief related, like COVID relief related investments, but those are not permanent. Those are temporary. So, so there's a lot to unpack, right? And we haven't even gotten to things like occupational segregation, male dominated workforces versus female dominated, et cetera. My best friend is a daycare teacher. We pay people who take care of our money far more than the people who take care of our children, right? Um, but I was gonna, I wanted to have you clarify something because um, I, I thought it was a brilliant point that when we talk about wage gaps, right? The gender wage gap, we think about money. And I think a lot of the, the answer, people are like, well, just pay women more. But you mentioned something about power. What do you mean by power? Because I think people just think about the cash, <laughs> but it's more than that. Can you, can you clarify what you mean by that a little bit? Sure. I mean, in a lot of ways, it, it goes back to what I said about choices. Choices are what create power, right? Or power creates choices. And you don't have choices when you don't have power. So in, in thinking about the gender wage gap, for example, it's also, if you have a job that doesn't have stable or predictable scheduling, right? You get assigned shifts, you get assigned a number of hours, you don't have control over that, then you really don't know how much money you're gonna be making. You not only don't know how much money you're gonna be making, you can't really get, start taking night classes, you know, where you need to be able to do things on a steady basis. You might not be able to find a daycare because daycares often require a particular commitment on in terms of how they're going to be and when they're going to be taking care of your kids. You also potentially can lose money. So we've we've worked, Women Employed has worked on this issue of stable and predictable scheduling because in industries, for example, like retail or restaurants or those kinds of things, we're finding that people, workers, frontline sales folks, were told, okay, you come in, you come in for these hours and then you leave and then they'd show up for work and they'd be like, well, it turns out we don't need you. You can just you know, clock out after an hour or a couple of hours. This worker has now paid money for childcare, has paid money for transportation, and is potentially in the negative because they have made less money than they have spent to be able to get to their job. So when we're talking about power, right? We're talking about the power to be able to define your schedule instead of having it defined for you. It is the power to be able to say, you know, I want to go and get a credential that will allow me to get a better job. How accessible is getting that credential? What do I need in order to get there? How much is it going to cost me? How much time is it going to take? Who's going to take care of my kids while I'm in class? Can I take that in an asynchronous way? as opposed to having to go and show up at a particular time as well. So I think, you know, power can be defined in these like, what could potentially be described as like more micro ways rather than kind of necessarily all big ways. But I mean, it also then, when we talk about choices, when we talk about security, when we kind of talk about power, we can also think about workers organizing. Right. We can also talk about unions. We can talk about um, who who gets the right of first refusal for their job. So we worked with the um, 
labor organizers at Unite here because we wanted to make sure what we, what we were hearing happening in the hotel industry would, would not happen, which is that hotel housekeepers, overwhelmingly women, women of color, immigrant women, and older women, importantly, um, were being laid off because hotels were shutting down during the pandemic or, or kind of reducing the number of rooms. Understandable, right, that that was happening. But what was also happening is that these workers were being told that if they wanted their jobs back once, you know, hospitality industry was recovering, that they would need to reapply as though they were brand new. And they would not be able to hold on to the increases in wages and benefits that they had earned over decades of work at that same hotel. And so we we worked with Unite here on getting an ordinance passed in Chicago to ensure that they would get offered their jobs back at the wages and benefits that they had earned through their tenure and loyalty at the hotels that they had worked at before the hotel was going to use this as an opportunity to cut labor costs and hire younger, less experienced, um, and frankly, cheaper labor, right? So when we're talking about power, we're talking about it at all kind of like different levels. I think, and, and it's, it is very deep. It's very kind of much like an onion. When you think about the wealth gap that I was talking about before that results from the wage gap, homeowners are more likely to be counted in the census. The census is part of how we are able to establish our economic power through political power, right? And being able to make sure that we are represented. Well, multi-unit apartment buildings have a lower rate of response and participation in the Census Bureau. And that is one of the reasons that you see immigrant and people of color undercounted in the census. But that means that we're also underrepresented, right? So when you have the, that wage gap that leads to the wealth gap, that means that you can't make choices to, uh, you can't afford the choices to buy your home. That means that you are then underrepresented as a political group, right? When it comes to the census, it has all sorts of, of consequences. I think Another thing that plays into this is you're talking about power and, you know, and collective bargaining and negotiating power at the table. It also, I think that's on the big picture level, as you described in the, in the sort of individual level is women have generally been, you know, are reluctant to negotiate for a higher salary for any number of reasons. And I think a, a big part of that is the perception of what you're like as a woman if you push back, right? So there's this whole stereotype issue, which is men are actually rewarded for being determined and you know maybe even a little pushy and aggressive. Women are not. And so there is the, like, you might, there's also this sort of like workplace thing, right? Where it's like, you might get your $20,000 increase but how, do, how does that affect the perception of you in the workplace? And then do you lose your power in the workplace because people are like, she's, she's bitch, right? She's pushy, she's this, she's that. Um, so you, and there's sort of like the short-term, long-term thing, which is how do you play, play the game for women? That game is far more complicated than it is for men. Right, absolutely. And 
it's not legal, right, to um, discriminate on the basis of pregnancy or perceived pregnancy. But if a woman is, or person who's able to be pregnant is uh, of those childbearing years, you know, that can be factored in, uh, whether or not it, you know, and a, and a prospective employer wants to wants to admit that that's a piece of what, you know, gets factored in. One of the things we're often up against is that those gender role stereotypes really play a huge part in how people think that we should resolve issues around the gender wage gap, right? So it's, oh, well, you know, women just aren't socialized to negotiate. And so if they just learned how to negotiate like men, then we wouldn't have a gender wage gap, right? Which is incredibly problematic on a number of different levels, not least of which because of the issue that you raised, Shailushi. The very same behavior by two different people is interpreted differently because of their gender. And so what looks like determined assertiveness looks like being a bitch when it comes to differences in how gender is perceived. And we often talk about, okay, like you should know your value. You should know what the market is. You should do your research. And all of those things are true. There's also uh, publicly available information through sites like Payscale or Glassdoor, those kinds of things. And you can, you can get a lot of information through that. But this is also one of the reasons why we pushed for um, what in Illinois is a, is a ban on asking for salary history because wage gap is compounded. This is part of the reason it increases um, with age is because if you were unpaid, underpaid in your first job and your second job salary offer is based in part on what you were getting paid at your first job, well, now you are facing a, a increased gap and that, that just increases like every job, every move you make that issue of negotiation, that issue of knowing your worth, yes, is incredibly important. But by removing the salary history as a question that a prospective employer can make, we're really pushing for valuing a job according to the skills, experience, and qualifications that are needed to do the job, as well as the kind of like what the market sets, right, in terms of what a competitive market rate is. That's kind of advice around you just need to negotiate better also ignores the fact that it's not just that women might be seen as bitchy for negotiating it's that that offers are actually withdrawn because they ask to negotiate and there is there is evidence of this right there are studies that have been done that show that if you if you try to negotiate that in some cases that actually results in you just not getting the opportunity, whereas that is less likely to happen for men. And so much of that is based on expectation that the employer is likely to expect a man to negotiate and doesn't necessarily expect a woman, you know, a woman or a person of color, like there's a bit of like, you should just be thankful that you're getting this offer mentality. Like what more do you want from us? You know, all of these unspoken and often unconscious thoughts that are going on in a person's head. You know, 
Charmilee, you had mentioned it's illegal to ask about like pregnancy state and like, are you, you know, or marital status and stuff like that in an interview. I have been, so I work in corporate America. I've been in situations where it is not in the quote official interview, but it's a, a what I call a doorknob question, right? Like you're, you're leaving, you're wrapping things up and someone says like, oh, so are like, I see a ring. Are you married? And it's not official, but it's asked. And I've heard from people who are, you know, in the art or like in the military asking about deployment. You're not able, you're not officially allowed to ask that, but you're asked as you're leaving, you know, you have your hand on the doorknob. And I know that that's illegal, but to go, I'm not answering that question. That's illegal or whatever, like it implying even that that is not a, a you know, an illegal way of, of interviewing me, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to get the job if I'm calling this person out on the legality of his questions. Absolutely. And that's also another reason why it's incredibly problematic to leave this at individual. Um, I mean, as a job seeker, you are not necessarily, you know, depending on the situation, for the most part, job seekers are not in the power position. Absolutely. Right. And so it's, it's just unrealistic to expect that. Right. And, and so that also means that we have to do a better job of having companies be accountable, having them hold their, um, their HR and hiring process, processes accountable. If they outsource recruiters, you know, making sure that that's happening as well. We have to make sure these laws are enforced. This cannot be left um, uh, it's an incredibly heavy burden to leave on individuals who are trying to find a job and uh, to, and, and that means to societally, we also have to say like, this isn't okay. And, and knowing about your rights, knowing about what the laws kind of protect you from are really, really important as well. Um, you know, it's, it is tricky. We actually on our website have a series of suggestions for how to navigate. If you are actually asked for your salary history, even though in Illinois, that's against the law because of an understanding that that's not going to be the ideal opportunity for most people to be able to say, actually, that question is no longer allowable, you know, in, under Illinois law. If you do it online, and, you know, if you put like negotiable or NA, it'll just give you a red flag and be like, oh, you know, like an error message that's like, no, you have to put in a number. Yeah. And the algorithm's going to screen you out as an applicant. Yeah. Right. So it's like, or it won't even let you submit the, the application because there's an error message in there. So it's like, now you can't even, you have zero power because you're, you can't even submit your application and you're, there's no one you could talk to in order to say, you know, to work around that. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that was going to be, you know, one of my additional questions, which is, has women employed ever thought, or are they working on requiring salary ranges in job listings? Because that's sort of a very sneaky way of enforcing unequal pay. If you don't even know what you could make, you could either just sort of, you know, undersell yourself or overshoot. And then you don't even get the opportunity or the worst case scenario, which is you, 
talking about investing, you put all this time and energy into interviewing and 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 then the salaries outside your range. Like I can't take that job, and that has actually happened to me at least once, um, where I was you know interviewing for this role and it was going to be great and I was really excited and I got the offer and then the money was like, that's no, that's like an insulting offer. And if they had put that up front, I would never have applied for it. And it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time and money on both sides, right? Like they're not getting someone in that in this round, and I don't want to work there. And now I've just wasted all my time and energy chasing this job. And money sometimes, because you take, because you could. Some people have to take like vacation days and stuff like yeah, that, right? In order to interview. Sure. Yeah, it's costly. Absolutely. And and sometimes they're providing work product too. Like they're being asked to like, okay, give us a sample. We're going to give you a scenario. You give us a, you know, some, some sort of work product in response and they get to keep your work product and it was free for them. Right. So yes, yeah, salary transparency is, is an opportunity to, to again, um, rebalance power. There's lots of ways in which salary transparency kind of takes um, takes effect. One is knowing that you are legally allowed to discuss your salary with your coworkers. And that is often subtly discouraged or sometimes more explicitly so, but it is not actually legal to prohibit someone from discussing their salary. So that's one way that salary transparency shows up. Another way that salary transparency shows up is we're, we're seeing Kind of some some movement around uh, requiring companies to post salaries, and so in Colorado they actually require that salary ranges are posted, and it was very controversial. Um, but they've had that in place now for at least a year, and the idea again is let's not waste anyone's time, and and it also allows for folks to be able to get a sense of what's what's an outlier. You know, like what what what's the typical range for something versus what's kind of well below range and what's what's above range. So that is an opportunity uh, for understanding better where you might be able to get more of what you're worth and what you're seeking, for sure. Um, I think one of the issues that comes up is that. Sometimes that salary transparency only exists for positions that then are getting hired for. And so if you're looking at a promotional opportunity, for example, are companies being transparent about um, what the salary opportunities are there? So we have to, I think we have to think at layer in layers about what salary transparency really looks like for that Great reason. Point. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's another, that's another I can. Um, uh, you know, promotions are just another area where wage inequity gets compounded, right? Because if you came in low, your promotion's going to be low. It's usually like, oh, you got a 12% raise or whatever. Well, 12% of a higher salary is going to be more. Um, and that particularly compounds so much, even in those, you know, you're with the company for 10 years or whatever, you know, every time it's a 10% of what you were making before, right? It's, you know, compounding interest, basically. Yeah, except in the wrong way. <laughs> in the wrong way, exactly. <laughs> you're losing money every single time. It's, a, you know, it's, a, it's, I guess you're right. It's a very insidious form of, of wage discrimination. And 
and age discrimination as well, because of course you're gonna be older, but of course, if you started low and by the time you're, you know, 10 years on, you've lost so much just from having, you know, stayed at the same company and never really sort of leveling up where you should be. And the wages and the advancement opportunities together um, have also like have to be considered. And these are not just issues for higher income folks. The wage gap is true up and down the economic ladder and the opportunities for advancement also exist. Whether it's about whether or not you get to go from a cashier to an assistant manager at a fast food restaurant, or whether you're talking about whether or not you'll be considered for a VP at a marketing firm. You know, those are, those promotional opportunities are part and parcel of what creates the gender wage gap. Yeah. I, you know, I do remember, and this was like, like such huge front page news. I've never heard of any other company doing this before when Salesforce did their wage edit or, you know, assessment. And they looked at, and good on them for doing that. They looked at every layer of the company. You know, they found that basically women were being underpaid in every, you know, at every level. And they leveled those people up, which was great. They actually have done more, which is, I'm sort of scrolling through this article that they've done more around uh, bias, just the unconscious bias that exists in companies and what what leadership looks like to address that, which is great. But I'm also, you know, it's also, they're an outlier. You don't hear of companies doing that. It's like, it's all, I mean, they're happy to let wage inequity exist. And, and that's, you know, for everybody, not just women, people of color. I, I can imagine there's wage inequity for people who are LGBTQ plus. And, and so all of that to get, you know, it's like nobody's interested in doing that because it's expensive. And yet I think about what you said, which is like, if we actually address this stuff, the wage inequity one, but also some of the, the consequences of that, we would have a trillion dollars more in our GDP. Like there's, Again, it's a short-term, long-term thing. Like, why aren't we looking at the long-term? What do you, why aren't we looking at the long-term? I mean, that's a question. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, in one way, you know, we start getting into um, current iterations of, of how shareholders have power in companies, right? That there are, ways in which shareholder primacy becomes an issue where really the company is is most focused on making the most money possible for its shareholders as opposed to having a multi-stakeholder approach which includes their employees right so in if you if you only look at a shareholder primacy way of thinking about it then labor is only a cost and so labor that that line item is one that you're constantly trying to control so that your shareholders get get more more dividends more money it's not a particularly long term approach right because it doesn't treat talent as an asset and it really doesn't consider turnover as a cost either the fact that you're not able to retain talent is a cost that is difficult to quantify on a balance sheet but it has an impact in a company, no matter its size. And you can particularly see this with a small business, right? So small businesses will tell you like, 
if we're not able to hold on to our workers, we will suffer because we don't have the staffing capacity um, to be able to offer whatever our products and services are. And you just scale that, right? And, and think about large companies as well that don't treat their um, employees um, as, as the valuable stakeholders that they are in the company's success. And there are, there, there's all sorts of costs associated with attrition. Yes, I, I think it is true that looking at and monitoring what is going on in your company as it relates to mitigating bias, to your point, mitigating bias at a gender level, what, you know, gender identity, sexual orientation, race, you know, bias shows up in lots of different ways, age. Um, mitigating that requires spending time and money. It is intentional. I think that it's also a question of whether or not your company is thinking about risks and opportunity costs. And opportunity costs are costs too. When you lose people who are talented, who bring a fresh perspective, we know that diversity, for example, is a factor in the success of a company, right? There's ample evidence for that. If you're losing diversity, you are actually shooting yourself in the foot. And, and companies like Salesforce and other companies that have uh, been more on the leading edge of thinking about pay equity, I think are also you know, they're not doing it for purely altruistic reasons. It makes business sense to be paying attention to these things and not just from a, like, we have a good reputation perspective, right? So yes, absolutely. We, we advocate for and support companies doing things like pay audits, but I will tell you, unless they are able and willing to look at the results of that audit, to share to the degree that it is appropriate, like not sharing confidential information, right? But to share to the degree that it's appropriate what the results of that audit are internally, and then actually following through on actions to bring people up to parity and share how they're gonna prevent it in the future and hold themselves accountable, it, it's not gonna pay off. So it is, it is not just investing in an audit. It's investing in the, the stakeholders that employees represent in your company and in, in that inclusivity, in that opportunity. It's a long-term ongoing investment and it, it pays off. Yeah. I mean, the only reason Salesforce was able to do it is because Mark Benioff was like, we're going to do it. And he's, he's, the CEO of the company, I also imagine he's like the primary, you know, shareholder. He owns most of the shares of, you know, 51% or whatever of the shares. So he also gets to call the shots on this, on the, you know, on the board of directors level. Uh, can you, it, okay, this is a little bit of a pivot. Can you talk a little bit about then what happens with things like sexual harassment in the workplace? Because I know that there is evidence that's like when women, especially in some of these like high power, like, like investment bakers or, or stockbrokers or something, so many of the deals and the best, the best clients and things are, you know, on the golf course, quote unquote, or, or off the clock at, at cocktail parties and at the bar, when women are sexually harassed, there is a higher level of like not saying something 
because they're afraid it's going to affect their job prospects. Yeah. So sexual harassment remains to be one of the uh, most prevalent forms of gender discrimination in the American workplace, regardless of the workplace. So one example I can give you is that uh, the vast majority of restaurant servers have experienced sexual harassment. And during the pandemic, when a lot of restaurants had mask mandates, uh, the organization One Fair Wage, who we partner with, did uh, some research and, and they found that not only were these servers who are dependent on tips, mind you, so when we're talking about restaurant servers, we're talking about a group of workers who are paid sub-minimum wage. A lot of people don't realize this. There is something called the sub-minimum wage. The minimum wage is not actually the minimum wage for everyone. The sub-minimum wage basically says you get paid less than minimum wage and you will be, you have to make the balance up in, in tips. So, so restaurant servers, again, when we were talking about power before, right? This is creating a level of vulnerability by making people dependent on customers for making a minimum wage, let alone um, anything above that. So they found that these restaurant servers not only were tips down, they were also getting harassed even more. And the harassment was sexual harassment as well as other kinds of harassment. And so they, they coined this term masculine harassment because they were getting harassed because they were trying to enforce mask mandates. And they were getting harassed in ways that just kind of doubled down on the sexual harassment that was already experienced by most, many um, tipped workers, which was like, you have to pull down your mask so I can see how cute you are before I decide how much I'm going to tip you. I have heard, I read stories about this and it was putting servers at like absolute risk and bartenders and stuff. Absolutely. And they're at risk from a health perspective, right? They're at risk from their livelihood perspective as well. So, you know, that's one way we see sexual harassment certainly um, showing up and, and has, has always been a problem in, in tipped work. But sexual harassment, to your point, is, is an issue that folks are contending with regardless of what kind of workplace we're talking about. And, you know, the Me Too, movement um, and, and the work that Tarana Burke um, really spearheaded and has continued has done a lot for creating visibility and um, education and resources around harassment. And we still have a lot of work to do in addressing harassment and ensuring that our workplaces are truly inclusive and equitable and therefore don't have harassment at all. So when we talk about male-dominated industries, being a male-dominated workplace is actually a risk factor for sexual harassment. And it's partly because sexual harassment operates as a way of kind of keeping people in their place, right? You don't belong here. And we are going to show you that you don't belong here by harassing you. Again, you know, in, in terms of that, like a very simplistic way of thinking about the wage gap, there are many ways in which women are told, oh, just, you know, get, get a job in a higher paying industry, right? 
without really considering whether that industry and that workplace is truly set up to welcome and keep them. And is it set up to be a healthy working environment for that person? And there's, there's a lot of work that we still need to do there because it is about changing that workplace. It's a cultural shift. It's not just a numbers game. And recruiting and hiring are, are one thing, but retaining and advancing are another. And we need to make strides on all of those fronts. It can't just be like we, we're able, we're great at getting you know, women in the front door, but we pretty much very quickly show them the back door after that. Like that's, not, that's not advancement. That's not progress. It really needs to go kind of like across the board. I mean, that's almost worse than not getting in at all, right? To be like, to get in and then be like, and out you go. There's a bit, it's like, it really eats at your morale. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and sexual harassment is is not a light thing. I mean, there's, you know, the American Heart Association just shared that there was a, a really new study just, I think, in February um, that was released that showed that sexual harassment increased the risk of heart disease significantly, and specifically sexual harassment. So other forms of discrimination also, in, you know, incredibly stressful, but that sexual harassment and sexual violence um, increased the risk of heart disease. So the risks are significant. This also, Kosha, to your point where it was like, you know, you don't want to risk losing your job. I think the other, the flip side of that is what about that guy who brings in lots of clients, but he's an absolute jerk to his colleagues? You know, mm-hmm. how do we see him? How do we evaluate his performance? Is he treated as like he's just too valuable for us to potentially lose him? Or are you going to look at him and say, he's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Um, And how he uh, has discriminated against his colleagues has actually affected their ability to bring their best selves to work, right? What, again, is the opportunity cost? You know, when we talk about someone like Harvey Weinstein, who, you know, is just um, such a clear villain in the, in the Me Too saga. I also think about all of the, the people that, that he violated and what, like, what art do we not have in the world because of that? What stories didn't get told? What movies didn't get told? What didn't get created because of the ways that he treated people without dignity and inhumanely. So when I, when I see, you know, folks say, oh, well, you know, what about his family or, or he shouldn't have to lose his job over this or what, what are the, what are the costs of holding him accountable for his behavior? What they're also saying is that we don't value what the victims of that behavior lost or we're not, didn't have the opportunity to contribute. Okay, that just landed very heavily with me because now I'm like, whew, 
Well, I'll, well, I'll need to take a deep breath. <laughs> We're fucked. There's nothing we can do. <laughs> but that's not true, right? I mean, I think that, see, in the work that we do when we're fighting for something like gender equity, when we're when we're doing the advocacy work, when it feels like an uphill climb for for policy and cultural shift, right? And and building this world and this workplace that that we know is possible, that is inclusive, that is equitable. You can't do this work if you're not an optimist. You can't do this work if you're not hopeful. And you can't do this work if you see that there are people who are really trying to be on the right side of history, that there are companies who are willing and able to, to respond to what they're hearing or to start off from that place of wanting to do right by the people who work there and who understand that those workers are part of what their success is built off of, right? It's, 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 it's not just one group that's responsible for success when it comes to a company. And we've seen so many advances that in a large part are because people are claiming their power or they're creating power collectively. Um, whether we're talking about the $15 minimum wage in Illinois, whether we're talking about being able to have paid sick leave, whether we're talking about increases in available state-based, need-based financial aid for, for students. I think we, we see power being built, being exercised in lots of different ways. And the Me Too movement also very much an example of that. So yes, it's heavy and there is a lot of work to do. But I think about how there are companies who, because of the pandemic, have really rethought what they require in a workplace. Do they really need everyone to show up every single day in the office? Or are they actually able to function really well and sometimes even better or hold on to their talent even more if they provide more flexibility? There are, there are employers who are taking this moment to say, We've learned some things through this process and we don't, the status quo was not good for everybody. It wasn't good for most people. So, you know, it's, it's now a little bit cliche, but this idea of building back better is, is one that we are seeing employers uh, take seriously. And we're also seeing folks who are like, you know what, the workplace, the traditional workplace is just not going to work for me. And they're carving their own paths. Um, they're resetting. They're defining success and ambition in different ways. You know, they're starting businesses or micro enterprises as well. So I think there is a shift. I think there is momentum. It's going to require continued energy and vigilance and action and ensuring that we aren't satisfied with saying, oh, we want to go back to what it was like pre-pandemic. First of all, we can't. The pandemic is still here. It's not like it's over. Um, and I think people's expectations are different. We're certainly seeing workers demand better wages, um, better working conditions, um, and, and benefits, all of those things. And then with social media, too, people are screenshotting what their managers are telling them to do. And it's hard. It's a lot harder now 
in a virtual world where for managers and, and companies to get away with some of this stuff when, when workers are willing to put it out there? It's an old saying that, that people quit managers, not, not workplaces, right? That they, they, so I think it does just double down on how important it is that whoever is in those roles of supervising and managing people that they're able to make and are supported in making those cultural shifts. Also, you manage a remote workforce or a hybrid workforce differently than you manage folks who are right in front of you. And that has to be factored in to what someone's experience of their workplace is. They're going to experience it differently if, you know, going back to the survey by Indeed that I was talking about before, having, making accommodations on paper is very different than having a manager who supports those accommodations or who support, you know, their, their employees equally, regardless of what location their employees who trust them, you know, who communicates with them, who provides the stretch opportunities and the glamour projects and all of that. It, it, it requires a degree of kind of thoughtfulness and intentionality that is really important. Yeah. Especially the other thing, and I was just reminded of something I said to you probably five years ago or something, which is any movement like this, this social cultural movement, it's a long haul. It's generational work that racial equity, that, you know, gender equity, reproductive justice work, it's all, it's a long haul. And so you take the baton as far as you can take it and you hand it over to someone else when you can't take it anymore. Like when you can't carry it further. Right. And that's part, part of why, um, as Charmila said, you have to be an optimist because you have to know, you, you have to believe you can take it somewhere and you have to believe someone's going to be on the other side to pick it up from you. But the other thing is, you know, to, to reflect on power at the intersections of race and gender and sexuality and gender identity and, you know, reproductive justice and all these things, like there is a ton of power there. And I really do feel like we are finally starting like as different movements actually starting to work together uh, more collaboratively and working at the intersections where it's not just one set of voices talking, right? When we talk about uh, gender equity, we're talking about economics. We're also talking about um, the economy in general, like economy, money. We're talking about violence, sexual violence, gender-based violence, right? And how that affects women differently than, you know, that men don't experience a lot of that stuff. And, and how, for example, sexual violence and domestic violence come together, that reproductive justice is part of this. One of our uh, guests had said, she is a, a black queer woman. And when she's asked to participate, right, in certain conversations, it's like, okay, do you need me as a black person? Do you need me as a woman? Or do you need me as a queer person? Like what part of Anna is, is being invited to this conversation and getting to the point where it's like, no, 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 I'm not leaving part of my identity at the door. And I think that's, what's getting demanded right now, right. Is for people to be able to bring, bring themselves to work, um, to bring what their needs are to work. And to see them, as you said, like in a holistic way and ensure that 
you're listening to them as employees, that you're designing workplaces and opportunities in response to those needs and, and who people are and not, you know, setting up some sort of mythical, you know, square hole that you're having all these, you know, getting all these people who are not squares <laughs> trying to, trying to force themselves into, trying to fit themselves into, you know, I think people are really questioning what's worth it. And keep in mind, you know, there is some privilege to be able to question that. Some people don't have choices, but I think that that, um, that just increases the urgency and the necessity of being able to push for those choices. Like you should not have to win the work lottery in order to be able to take time off when you're sick. I mean, even just from a public health perspective, like not a great idea to not have paid sick time. So, I mean, there, there's also kind of like table stakes, right? This is, this is what should be the floor. And yes, there are employers that are more than willing to play above that because they're really interested in, um, in attracting the most talented folks and having a diverse workforce. But we've got to have that floor be established in a way that allows for people to make realistic choices that balance their health and well-being, be able to think about their family's needs, et cetera. Yeah. I think one of the, you know, the pandemic's been hard on everyone, some people way more than others, but one of the things, if there's any shining, you know, spark to come out of this, it's that so many of the traditional assumptions about what work needed to look like or the conditions under which people would get their work done out the window, right? There is this pre, you know, pre 2020, there is a sense of like, well, we can't have people working at home. They're just going to screw around. The, they won't do anything, right? This very butts and seats is how you make sure people are getting their work done. And then it was just not possible to do that. You know, we couldn't do it for, you know, the better part of two years. And not only did that not happen, people were often more productive. People were working longer hours. Um, and because they didn't have to, you know, get out the door and sit in traffic for an hour and blah, 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 and all of that stuff, right? Um, and it allows for flexibility and things like, you know, from an employer standpoint, it's like, look, if I have a repair guy coming for my fridge, a repair person coming for my fridge, I don't have to take a whole half a day off so I can be at home. I can be at home working. That person comes in, does their stuff. It's been an hour out of my time, not like a whole day or half a day. That's one thing. I think the other thing, and this might be why employee prospective employees feel like they can do this, which is there's, because we've been at home, the blur between work and life is gone, right? There's no, it's, there used to be a line. Now there's no line at all. It's all just all over the place. Like, how do you, how do you, you know, act like you don't have a personal life when your kids are coming in or your cat is behind you or, you know, whatever it is that's happening behind you, or you get up and you forget that you're wearing a pair of shorts, you know? underneath your tie and, and button down, like the, all of that stuff just 
throws all of those assumptions of like, look, you got to work like you don't have a personal life and you have to have a personal life, you know, and your personal life can suffer. And for, for women, it's been like, you got to work like you don't have kids and you got to be a mom, like you don't have a job. Um, and that's, I think going out the window. I had a, just a, I have a work colleague. I love him so much that he would wear a button down and basketball shorts, but he would always tuck in his button down into his basketball. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's like, it like looked better on top if it was, and he felt like more professional that his shirt <laughs> was tucked into his basketball shorts. That's really so funny. Like, yeah, that is the blur. I think is like, no, no, no. I, but I'm tucking in my shirt. <laughs> I mean, I think there are, I think this is where it becomes particularly a double-edged sword for people who are caregivers, right? So um, caregivers are predominantly women. Um, Women also predominantly carry domestic labor burdens, right? It's caring for individuals, but also caring for the household, Mm -hmm. right? And one of the issues during the pandemic has been that like while men and so we're you know talking about um probably like heterosexual two-parent headed households while they've taken on some more of the burden of the domestic labor and caregiving they have not evened it out (laughs) and I think you know we we're, we're hearing so much about in particular how folks are burned out how like moms are burned out because that lack of boundaries kind of can play both ways. Right. And so it can mean that people are working hours beyond kind of what, what they would normally be working. It can be their expectations beyond that. So to your point about the, like the shift from a butts in the seat paternalistic perspective of management, right. Then it becomes your role as a manager you have to you have to be more focused on trust. You have to be focused on communication. You have to be willing to help someone withdrawing those boundaries between work and family um, as well, and not expect overwork to be a marker of investment. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Whether or not someone is invested in doing their job well should not be um, predicated on whether they're going above and beyond in a way where they're really burning themselves out and, and where their well-being is at risk. Again, there are this is these are shifts that are happening, can happen. They just have to be really intentional. Right. Um, and and well-being, I think, is one of the um, key markers right now that folks are looking for for themselves and that employers should be looking for as when they're considering what policies and practices can they support their employees. And again, policies are one thing, practices are another. And policies on paper are fantastic, but if they are not practiced or not practiced equitably, if managers aren't trained well in how to practice them, they are just not going to have the intended impact. And in some cases, they can actually deepen inequities. So you can have things like um, gender neutral, right, uh, parental leave. Um, to use kind of like a narrower form of paid family medical leave. Um, but if if the only people that ever take it are moms, um, or if the moms who take it are truly on leave, 
but the dads who take it are kind of like popping in for meetings and are still participating in some of the stuff that greases the wheels, right? Like the cocktails and the bar and the golf course and, and those kinds of things where they don't, that may be because they don't feel like they have permission to. Okay. So, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not yeah. blaming on them necessarily, but if your practices are not equitable in that sense, where you treat how, whether or not someone takes leave, um, how much they're able to truly detach from the workplace in, in taking that leave, you don't do that equitably. It's not truly, it's not going to create the impact that you want it to make. That's absolutely true. I mean, I just can think about just for my own work where, you know, when I start with an organization and I will say, you know, I will say to the staff I manage, look, I'm a, I'm a contractor. I'm a consultant. I work whenever I want to work. And whenever I work, I get paid. And whenever I don't work, I don't get paid. So if I'm sending you an email at nine o'clock at night, that does not mean I expect you to work at nine o'clock at night, right? You all are W2 paid employees, nine to five, whatever it is. I'm not. So if I'm working on a Saturday, that's because that's when I'm working. I don't expect you to answer my emails, answer my texts, right? And it's, as opposed to, I can imagine the flip side of that, which is, oh my God, my new boss is sending me an email at nine o'clock at night. I better respond. I better, you know, that's the expectation. And I think without somebody clearly saying, yes, you should take this leave. I do not expect you to respond. I, you know, I want you to go and have fun on the weekend. You're going on vacation. Do not talk to us without that sort of permission. Like you said, the policy can be the most gold star shining standard of a policy ever. But if, if it's not actually put into place very explicitly in some cases, it doesn't mean anything. And modeled. Absolutely, Kosha. Yeah, like my company has a policy that you do not have to, like no emails, no phone calls, like, you know, between Friday at five o'clock and Monday at nine o'clock or eight o'clock. But I had, I've had managers who, write me emails on Sunday at 6.30. So it's like, it also has to be modeled. Now, at Shul, she's a, con, you know, a contractor or consultant that's different, but it had like, then when you're on vacation, Mr. Bossman, also stop sending emails. Also be off, like, don't hop on calls and stuff like that, because then the expectation is, feels like we are supposed to do it also. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Roxanne Gay has a uh, column with New York Times um, called Work Friend. And I think there was a letter recently that was written in by someone whose boss had taken leave. I think it may have been parental leave, but I'm not sure. And he kept on kind of popping in and sharing his opinion and all of this stuff and was actually like actively undermining the letter writer because he was providing these ideas on off hours. He wasn't part of the meetings at which strategy or decisions were being made, all of those things. And it was, it was so disruptive and it had such a negative consequence and was creating extra work for everybody. And now for all I know, the boss may have been very concerned about what it may, meant for him to be disconnected from the workplace, right? Who knows whether or not he had seen any good modeling of how to take leave, right? But I think that's another example, like 
not only was he interfering, but he was also basically saying, when you take leave, you're also still expected to work at the same time. And that there's a sense of like, and I don't trust you. And I don't trust you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I don't think that you can handle things without me was also what he was saying. So he was, through his behavior, was sending a lot of messages, none of them great. Um, and who knows what the impact was for him at home or for the reason that he was taking leave as well. And so, you know, it, it that modeling piece is absolutely critical, Kosha. Well, and this, I mean, this also sounds like a generational thing, which is, you know, if this person, if this boss was in his upper 50s, early 60s or whatever, what he learned, you know, when he started was not take care of yourself, have flexibility. That that just wasn't what it was back then, right? It was absolutely, you do what you need to do and don't take any time off and, you know, all of this stuff. Definitely, I think that's a generational change where it will, it's, that stuff takes a really long time because you have to change people's thinking and their behavior. And an example of exactly how insidious that is, is that, you know, we have school, school age kids, right? Schools still have an award for perfect attendance. Yes. We should not have an award for perfect attendance. If you are sick, you should be staying at home. Yeah. You should be taking care of yourself. And in the case of young children, you should be taken care of. Right. We, we start so young with so many of these things and kind of valuing productivity above all else. Those, those things, the, the wage gap actually also shows up when you're talking about kids and what chores they're assigned. And if they get an allowance for those chores, how much they're paid. So typically what are the kinds of chores that are assigned to boys are usually like the mowing the lawn, the taking out the trash, usually usually like manual labor oriented things. For girls, it's usually caregiving tasks, domestic labor tasks, washing the dishes, babysitting, those kinds of things. And boys are compensated at a higher level for the chores that they do than girls are for the chores that they do. So when we talk about the gender wage gap that you see after someone graduates college, that was that was created much, much earlier than that because of the ways that we gender work and labor and how we value it as a result. I did not know that. That's insane. Yeah. I didn't know that either. It is, it it starts so early. It is, it is very, and, and in ways that I don't think that we really think about just like this perfect attendance thing. Like we don't see that as a corollary for not having sick leave. But it it is. is. Yeah. Well, and I, I worked with um, a guy years ago who was, it's, it's like a badge of honor when he said I have worked and he was, it was an on-call position, but he did, he was like, I have worked six out of the seven Christmases that I've been at this company. And it was like this all hail to this guy that he hasn't taken a vacation in six years. And I'm like, oh no, I don't want to do that job because, (laughs) right? Like, it's like, that's part of the benefit package. You're getting paid this amount of money plus 20 days vacation or whatever. But if you take the vacation, you don't get a badge of honor. 
Right. You're seen as a slacker or kind of like not all in or, or all of those kinds yeah. of stuff. Yeah. yeah. I do remember when Chicago passed a uh, paid sick leave, that part of that was the rationale. And this is what I you know, remember hearing. It's the rationale was when you just have PTO, people don't take it. They don't take it for being sick. They hold on to it for a vacation or something else. But if you have paid sick days, you must take those only when you're sick. And so it's sort of a way to like promote health and also to keep people in the office from being sick, right? I think that's probably the one thing that's gonna change more than anything, which is like, if people are so on guard now about having any kind of respiratory, (laughs) you know, like, okay, maybe I should stay home because I have a sore throat. And I don't know if I'm gonna make someone really, really ill or, you know, I'm contagious, I don't know what's going on hopefully at least that will shift a little bit so that at least people would be like, I am ill. I certainly hope so. Certainly hope so. I mean, Illinois continues to be a state in which there is no guarantee of paid sick leave for working people. So, and, and we're not, we are hardly alone as a, as a state. And, uh, you know, we're in a very unenviable position as a country of not providing that. So absolutely. I mean, as you said, just solely from a public health perspective, it does not, it, it does not behoove us to not have a benefit like paid sick leave be available. And one of the things that we really fought for when, when uh, paid sick leave was being considered just for Chicago and Chicago workers was also ensuring that it was something that um, folks could take for themselves or for a loved one that they were caring for, right? But making sure that how we define what eligible relationship you could take that time off for was as broadly considered as possible because in the same way that our workplaces have not really been designed traditionally to be as inclusive as possible, our benefits also like paid sick leave have to be defined for the fact that people have multi-generational households. They're often taking care of someone um, or someone is depending on them who is not a child or not a spouse. Um, You have uh, queer families, you know, you have lots of different ways that people come together and care for one another. Or even just non-married couples too. Non-married couples. Absolutely. Pull that back, you know, one layer, Kosha, you know, in our last season, particularly, we talked a lot about the importance of found family. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think about my best friend who's in California, who, if she was sick, I would drop everything and go and take care of her. She's not related to me by any, any, you know, any measure except for she's my best friend in the whole world. And I would do like, I love her so deeply. That's the only measure of whether she's family or not, but there are so many more relationships like that just because you're not blood related to them or marriage related to them doesn't mean that they don't qual- like they're not your relative or that you shouldn't take care of them when they're sick. What like when Shalusha got her surgery, I was able to take th- this kind of like family sick leave for her to, to go to the hospital. But I know people who were turned down for bereavement leave because their longtime boyfriend's mother passed away and they had to take a vacation day and not be able to take bereavement leave, even though that's practically their mother-in-law, right? It's, it comes down to suddenly these like old school, like judgment parameters 
of what we include, oh, you're not married. It's okay for you to be queer. But when it really comes down to the policy, we don't include you. Yeah. And, you know, like our, those are our policies at a federal level. Those are our policies at a state level. Those are policies at an employer level. Like there are so many different ways in which, um, and so many different levels at which we include and exclude. That, that's when we're talking about policies and practices and applying them, creating them and applying them equitably. We have to think about all of that. So what's next? What are you working on now? What is Women Employed working on now? We talked a lot about historically and some of the wins, which is awesome. What's sort of what's on the docket right now that you're really pushing and that you're hoping people learn about through this podcast? Yeah, so we are, uh, we are, really pushing for paid family and medical leave in Illinois, as well as paid sick leave. So those are two things. So for both of those, we are actually leading uh, statewide coalitions that are pushing for both of those things. We're also co-leading a statewide coalition to eliminate the subminimum tipped wage for tipped workers and make sure that tipped workers have the opportunity to earn a full and fair wage with tips on top. Um, We're not trying to get rid of tipping. We just think tipping should be what most people think of it as, which is an extra and and, an appreciation. Uh, We are also continuing to work on ensuring that there is as much need-based financial aid available to Illinois residents as possible. So that's called the Monetary Award Program, MAP grant. There was an increase to that funding included in the proposed budget from the governor and and we applaud that and we know that the need is still greater than that. Um, We are also working with Illinois Department of Labor um, on a grant. Illinois actually was awarded a competitive grant from the Women's Bureau of the U.S. Department of Labor and uh, the focus of that grant is on women accessing their rights and our focus with the Illinois Department of Labor is around pay equity. So we are looking at a statewide project, uh, working with a number of different community partners, the Department of Labor on ensuring that people, particularly black and Latinx women who are in low paid sectors are aware of what their rights are under Illinois' equal pay laws and that they know what resources are available, what remedies are available, how they can go about enforcement um, when a law is violated. Importantly, what we're also doing through that project, and it's called the FAIR grant, F-A-R-E, is ensuring that we're really listening to Black and Latinx working women in low paid sectors to say, kind of how can the system work better for you? How can we make sure that you uh, get outreach, that you have access to resources, that enforcement is working in a way that doesn't put the full burden of enforcing a law on individuals coming forward with complaints, those kinds of things. So these are all things that we are working on right now. We have a, a, a number of additional projects as well, but those are, those are some of the highest profile at the moment. Do you see some of, you know, the the paid FMLA and the paid sick leave, given the alignment of a Democratic legislature and a Democratic governor, 
do you see it more likely to be able to pass or is there still resistance that the resistance isn't necessarily based on your party it's just resistance now that the resistance is not necessarily based on party and and you know we've been working on um, advancing paid sick leave in the state of illinois for well over a decade these are not new efforts and these are not new needs uh the the needs have only perhaps been further illuminated by the pandemic, but we've, we've always needed paid sick leave. We've always needed paid family medical leave. Um, most workers don't have access to either through their employer. It has all sorts of consequences and those consequences fall disproportionately on women and on folks of color. So there's, it, it, there, there does need to be more political will to pass both of those. You know, there is more conversation about both during with the COVID relief packages from the federal administration. There was emergency leave that was included and an understanding of how critical that was. And I think we as a country just need to go the next step and make those leaves permanent. Yeah. So if our listeners wanted to get involved, what would you suggest that they do? Where would they go? What can they do? Absolutely. So uh, our our website is womenemployed.org. There are a number of different ways to get engaged with the work that we're doing. We actually have an action center. So if you sign up for that, um, we we really designed it to be for uh, ways for very busy people to, to take action. And so any of the work that we're doing, there are always opportunities to raise your voice um, to show your support for making sure that we truly have an opportunity to close the gender wage gap, but also just close the gap in a, as it relates to gender equity. So we welcome people that way. And we have an annual fundraiser that's coming up um, in May. We're going to have a hybrid fundraiser. Um, it's on May 17th. And we're really excited. It's called The Working Lunch. And we have awards and we have a, a, a raffle and really inspiring program as well. So we'd love to see folks there as well. Very cool. Very, very cool. Question want to ask that wrap up question? Then? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we talk about FAMILACT every episode. Um, do you have any examples within your your family, your small, you know, work family, whatever it is, your found family, um, that are some of these weird words that we say only weird words, phrases, you know, looks even we've had, um, <laughs> that we, we say only in our, in our little circles. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, the thing that came to mind is really silly. My, my family is Gujarati as well. And, um, my brother, would translate hot dog into garam kutra, which is like <laughs> a literal translation. And it drives my mom insane. Like she, oh it just God. drives her crazy. Which actually for our listeners is a hot dog, like not the food, but a warm dog. Animal, yes. Animal, yes. yes. <laughs> 
So he would just say garam kutra, and uh, like we're vegetarians, <laughs> like it's not like we weren't even eating hot dogs or anything like that. I think it was just this like silly thing. It was a way for him to poke at her a little bit, and she let it right. Like she, if she was just like whatever, he would have dropped it. Yeah, I think the other thing as a as a as someone who's in an interracial relationship, you know, my my um, partner she she's not Gujarati. One of the things that's all, that's that she teases me about that's really funny and I don't know if this happens like in in other relationships as well but like the first words I taught her in Gujarati were all like command it was all <laughs> like it was all like cuss cuss chalo chup <laughs> oh, my husband loves chup that's like his one of his oh. favorite things chup because it's like it literally it's like chopping you yeah. can't it's like <laughs> shut up but you don't even have time to say all of that. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly. how fast you have to stop. Wow, exactly. that's funny. Well, so my go-to Samalact, whenever I'm explaining what it is, is chalo. I have added to it where I'm like, jalloing, come on, let's chalo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now Anushka, my daughter has started saying that too. So yeah, I agree. It's like either commands or like like just these short random questions, right? <laughs> Right. Well, and it, growing up in a, an, a multilingual family, because, you know, like the U.S. is so depressingly unique in the sense that no one, like so many few people speak any language other than English. But growing up in India, my parents, like they they were easily like quadlingual and it wasn't even all that note, like noteworthy, right? Like they're people on a regular basis, like know all of these different languages. And so my brother and I were learning Spanish in school. So the funny thing was that if my brother and I didn't want my parents to know what we were saying, we would speak in Spanish to each other. But my parents had like, they would speak to each other in Marathi. Yeah. Because we didn't know Marathi. And so it was just funny that we each. Yeah. Our parents would speak to each other in Hindi. We knew, we knew enough Hindi that we would probably be able to pick stuff up. But so, so it was just funny that like in this, in this like, Indian family in in the U.S. that the way that my parents would be able to say stuff without us knowing was Marathi and the way that we would speak to each other was Spanish. <laughs> it's like the it's like the grown up multilingual version of like spelling things in front of your kids. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or using like pig Latin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when we were growing up, if we had all the lights on, my mom would say Diwali Nati. Yeah, we always she yeah, my my parents would too. <laughs> or Shailushini Lagan Nati, right? Like that's the only reason you only two reasons you could turn on all the lights yeah. is if it was Diwali or if I was somebody was getting married. That's hysterical. So my husband would say that. When he he didn't know what it meant, he would just say Diwali Nati and he would turn off the light <laughs> if I kept them all. One year and I was waiting, it was Diwali. And he goes, Diwali nothing. And I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> I was like, it happened one time and it was so perfect. Well, no, similarly, when I got married, because our younger sister had heard that so many times, you know, then it was like, when I was getting married, she went around and turned on every heard light, all the, light the entire house <laughs> every day. The whole week, she's like, well, this is my one chance. That's hysterical. <laughs> yeah. That's right. really awesome. I love it. Oh, my God. You, first of all, 
you know, I, I do the editing and I'm just thinking, I was like, this is going to be the easiest edit I have done in a year because you are so articulate. Oh, thank you. you. you I was like looking for ums and stuff. I'm like, she didn't say that at all. I can see the optimism. Like it, it was only that one time where I was like, well, we're all fucked. We can't do anything. <laughs> no, it can feel that way for sure. <laughs> I just did an interview. I just did an interview for ABC seven. So it aired today, um, this morning and I did it. And, and it was one of those times where, you know, and they always have to edit out and stuff. And I'm like, I'm, I'm on there with someone else, the, um, president and CEO of Chicago foundation for women, just how it worked was like, I was, I was the one talking about the problems the entire time. It was so (laughs) depressing. I was like, if anyone just listened to me, they'd be like, Oh my God. And then Felicia was like talking about like policies and opportunities and things. Now we're doing this great stuff. And I was like, oh my God. God." And then you're like, however. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's like, it's so much, the longer you're out of work, the harder it is to get a job, which is true. (laughs) I mean, like nothing I was saying was untrue, but it was like the part that I said after that didn't get in. (laughs) You know, that reminds me that LinkedIn, I mean, one of the biggest but subtle shifts that they made recently was allowing people to note on their, on their, you know, on their profiles, what they did during these gaps. And so it's like, you know, I had a baby, I would took care of my dying parent, you know, that's like, and it's just so small and easy for a company like LinkedIn to be like, here's some coding differences, but what a huge difference it makes to you know, someone who has had to take time out of the workplace. I went back to school um, or, but it's usually all this caregiving stuff that ends up falling disproportionately on women. And being seen negatively. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's deeply problematic. Cause now you don't know, you know, and I like, I took time off when both of my kids were born um, and I wanted to keep like one little toe in, into the workforce. Cause I'm like, one, I'm going to lose my mind if I'm just doing domestic labor all the time like I love my kids but they're boring like when they're that young the second thing is like I don't want to have two three-year gaps on my resume well and so many women are in this like sandwich right they're not just taking care of kids or parents they're taking both care of both I I think at least like legitimizing right that there are reasons that people are out of the paid workforce that are not kind of some indication of what value they bring um, is really important. Right. I'm not just some flight, you know, I'm not flighty. I didn't just go spend like three years backpacking in Europe and spent my dad's money. I'm not unreliable. I'm not unemployable, you know? Yeah. You are fantastic. Thank you so much Thank for coming you. on. Thank you. I had a lot of fun talking to you both. Yes, you were lovely. And uh, we'd love to have you back on when when some of your projects come to fruition and and we move Illinois forward a little bit. Absolutely. It'll happen. This will come out really soon. And so we'll do back to back it with that ABC seven interview. And then you can be like, look, I'm not just Miss Tooming. I was just like, oh, my God, I'm such a downer. I'm very much a dark rain cloud in that interview. You have a wonderful day. Enjoy thank you. You too. Sunday. And thank you so much for taking some of your time today. To stay with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for inviting me. Talk to you soon. Bye.